RMI's pediatric speech language pathologist and welcome to my podcast number 462 receptive language milestones by 48 months brought to you by my website teach me to talk where we're the largest provider of ASHA approved CEUs for early intervention thank you so much for being here if this is your first time to join me for a podcast I want to explain what you're listening to or watching Each of my podcasts is a continuing education course for therapists. The standard length of time for a course is about an hour, so that's how long today's course will be. I am so happy that we're able to share uh, these professional courses with parents for free here on YouTube, but I want you to understand what you're watching and what you're listening to before we get started. And it's so much more information that goes with discussion that goes well beyond what's typically available to parents. And again, we are so happy and grateful that we get to do that. If if it's not, not your first course with me, welcome back. It is always a privilege to have you join me to talk about everything related to early language development. So let's get going. Now today we're continuing our Language Milestones podcast series. We're all the way up to show number 13 of this 14-part series, so we're almost finished. But in this whole series, we've really been discussing the developmental language milestones that happen about the time a child turns one, when we start to really see evidence of language emerging, all the way through 48 months. And we've been doing each of these shows in in six-month increments, one show for receptive and one show for expressive. And like I said, today we're up almost at the end and we're looking at the receptive language milestones that a child meets by the time he or she is turning four. Now for therapists who do need continuing education credit for this course, you can get the link below if you're watching here on YouTube. If you're listening with your podcast app, you can get all that information at my website at teachmetotalk.com. And this is show number 462. For parents, you can also purchase the show notes or the PDF handout for this course and it's an excellent tool for you and again back to therapist it's a great tool for parents for uh, parent education and so you can use this tool even as you're trying to incorporate your evidence-based practice model for coaching parents with with teaching modeling coaching and then reviewing and so this handout can certainly be used as part of your program to do that Um, also parents as I said before you can purchase the PDF handout that link is below there's also a donation option because so many parents and grandparents email us every day at teach me to talk and ask how they can support our work and that's certainly one way that you can do that so both the links for the CE credit and the podcast or show notes are below here and it's show number 462 all right let's begin by reviewing viewing the milestones uh, for this developmental age range. And so again, we're talking about receptive language or what a child understands by the time he or she turns four. And four is admittedly old for me. (laughs) I really specialize in infants and toddlers and then see kids on through that early preschool period. So this is kind of an end for where I see lots of children. And of course, there will be children who are much older than four who are still really working on these milestones and so again you may have a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old that you're working with that these goals will be appropriate for all right so what's the first milestone and you can certainly follow along on your handout the first one is groups objects and pictures by more complex category so if you've been with me through this whole series 
all of the milestones bump up. So we first started talking about grouping and sorting with very simple categories back at about the 24 month level or 24 to 30 months. And so now children have matured, they've learned more and more language, and so now they can do more complex grouping, not only with objects or things that are, again, more functional in their environments, but this ability also now extends to pictures. And that's certainly important for us as SLPs because that's how we assess children right and so to see now that children again that they're bumping up more and more and that we can uh, more accurately use pictures as a more reliable indicator for what a child really really understands all right so that's the first milestone the second one and we have so much to talk about under that I can't I can't wait till we get there to talk about all the strategies and the things that you can do the second milestone here is understands analogies so what's an analogy it's where you're making a comparison and so now by the time a child uh, is turning four, he or she, again, is mature enough and with the cognitive and the language complexity to be able to understand things like you sleep in a bed, you sit on a chair, right? And so they're able to either with receptively, with a receptive milestone, they would be selecting chair like with a group of pictures here. So let's say, you know, again, they have some options with you sleep on a bed, you sit on a chair. There, there might be a picture of a chair and a table and say, you know, a, a, just a, a floor mat. And so, again, children will be able to understand that just from that auditory uh, input that they get to be able to select the correct picture. And if you stay with me for the expressive component of this uh, skill in the next and final show in this series, that's where kids, again, are able to really answer that. But we always expect kids to be able to give us that receptive response accurately even before they can do the expressive response. And so that's something we'll be talking about too. So understands analogies. The next milestone is understands emotion words. So what are emotion words? These are words that describe emotions like happy, sad, angry, frustrated, whatever word that you would typically use with your child to describe an emotional state that he or she frequently or even infrequently feels. And so these emotion words aren't mastered receptively until a child turns, uh, uh, again, between three and a half to four years. We target them much earlier than that, but this is when we know that kids really, or the majority of children, by uh, 90% or so, really understand that emotion word. The next milestone also, again, is that, that ever-expanding goal, or our target there, is understands more complex sentences. So this means that children now can process and respond to sentences that are expanded and sentences with uh, two familiar attributes. So they can do things like when you're looking at pictures, find the big white dog. And there might be several dogs there. Some of them would be, you know, we've got the descriptors there, big and white. So we'll have uh, different uh, sizes there, different colors for a child to really be able to evaluate and then make a decision and a choice based on the words that he or she have heard. So they're, again, that just that more vocabulary. And with more vocabulary uh, comes, again, that more, uh, more complex cognitive processing. So again, all, all those are dependent and um, 
really rely on each other. Okay, the next skill is receptively identifies all the basic colors. Now, we talked about this back in the 36-month receptive language show, but it's not on some tests until age four. And what I would say about this is if a child doesn't know basic colors by four, there are usually two things going on, or one of two things going on. There could be an environmental issue meaning a lack of instruction or a lack of uh, adult interaction so that an adult is there and talking about things and introducing, and again, colors uh, would be the milestones that we're talking about, so that environmental issue. And if that's not the case, if a child is in a home with a language-rich environment and parents who are talking with him and trying to teach him things that any parent would naturally want to talk about and teach a child who is two, three, and four, there, there would very likely be a cognitive issue going on. And so that's sometimes hard for a parent to hear. If you're a parent listening now and that's that's kind of a new thing for you to really uh, process there. Uh, that's that's the kind of thing we do on this show is really talk about those things and when children should have mastered uh, milestones and skills by certain times. And so when we see a kid who's still struggling by age four to understand uh, that really foundational academic concept, we know that there's something going on. Uh, and so that's how we want to talk about it and look at it. All right, our last milestone on, on this list is understands names for basic shapes. That's another pre-academic skill, and it's, again, not on our test until a child is turning four. Now, toy companies are obsessed with this uh, for babies, color, shapes, letters, and numbers, but by four, yes, we should certainly be thinking about that. And something that I, if you follow my work for a while, I don't think we should worry about these kinds of academic things like shapes, colors, letters, and numbers for children who aren't communicating. And so if you have by chance stumbled upon this show and your child is four and you were looking for strategies to help a child learn to communicate, again, we're all we're really reviewing typical development here or what children have mastered or what about nearly all children, and we, we loosely say that 90 to 95% of children have mastered before it becomes an acceptable uh, age uh, assigned milestone. And so again, these are things that uh, typically developing children have certainly mastered by the time that they get here. So if a child is still struggling with these milestones, we know that there is a language component to his or her developmental issue. All right, so let's talk about uh, with typical development, what are the main things going on in this age range? There's certainly more maturity. And like we talked about before in previous shows, if you work with itty bitty uh, little friends like I do, infants and toddlers, four-year-olds are pretty mature. They can even use words to talk about words now. So here's where we start to have children really begin to define and explain things, which is why we see lots of comparative language now. They begin to reason, and like we talked about today with analogies, and again, that more complex thinking. And we'll also see that emerge uh, in their language as well. Now, remember that for children with a history of language delay, we always want to be able to support a child receptively before we expect an expressive outcome. So what does that mean? That means children have to understand what we're talking about and the new skills and milestones that we're introducing to them before they're able to really uh, tell us and use the words to explain that. So as as we even talk about these things that are more mature and more complex than those of us who typically deal in infant 
uh, and toddler programs with families, even if this is a receptive task, we will not automatically expect that verbal response until a child first masters the concept receptively. For kids with auditory processing issues, they may need even more time to process and learn that information, uh, and that's going to be easier for them without the expectation that they should talk while they do it. And I mentioned auditory processing issues, and we'll review some common signs and symptoms of auditory processing issues in preschoolers because it's, it's so important and it's so prevalent, but we'll do that after we take a look at the milestones. So let's just go ahead now and begin our discussion of the milestones that we just reviewed. The first milestone is groups, objects, and pictures by a more complex category. Now, as we said in the introduction, kids have been practicing this skill for a while now, so they're better at it. So we can bump it up and introduce more criteria for them to be able to choose from. So now instead of just grouping and sorting animals, we could say, or let's say like animals versus blocks, now we can have them really uh, differentiate within the same category. So they may be able to separate things like ocean animals versus farm animals, or instead of foods, like foods versus vehicles, now they can actually separate the food, say, into meats versus vegetables, and then even with the vehicles, maybe into cars versus trucks, or cars, trucks, motorcycles, and boats. They can really separate things now, again, uh, by using that more uh, specified criteria. So the vocabulary, again, has increased here, not only for more names of specific nouns, but more words to group them. So they have more words with their vocabulary that actually describe categories now. So they're able to do things like instead of, uh, like we were talking about vehicles or baby dolls, they're able to call all of those things toys and group them in those larger categories versus say something like, art supplies where you have crayons and markers and maybe glue and they start to understand those bigger categories and again the vocabulary bumps will certainly help them do that we've got to teach them those those bigger words for broader categories so what should we do for treatment we've got to design specific opportunities to group those objects by category now situations will naturally come up in play but you've really got to be looking for these opportunities to think what can I categorize today or what can I have this child group so let's take some common things let's say that you're playing uh, in a little kitchen area what could you do you could separate what foods from dishes right so you'll say something like it, it and you don't even have to make it that specific like let's put all the foods over here and let's put all the dishes over here situations will naturally come up when you say things like let's wash the dishes you know let's put all the dishes here in the sink so naturally they're going to leave out the things that aren't dishes right so that's kind of how we think about working on this and, and doing it in a more naturalistic way you could even make it more complex you can maybe separate even among the dishes let Let's separate the plate. Let's put the plates here and let's go ahead and put all the forks in the sink. And so again, we're using really specific uh, differentiations within that same category. And uh, uh, like I said, that's going to naturally come up in play. Um, and, and when a child has difficulty with this, always think about first, I'm going to start broad. So like we said before, if you were playing and doing foods versus dishes, and then you separate it down into those smaller categories. So let's take a new topic. Let's say uh, 
that you're doing uh, playing with uh, garages with a vehicle and you're going to separate all the different uh, little vehicles there so you're going to put the cars over here maybe and again you could do it in play where the cars are all going to go in the garage but the trucks are going to stay down here so that we can wash them or, or whatever you come up with there uh, the visual cues really really help when you're doing this kind of thing where you are making piles and you can certainly uh, introduce this to parents as they are looking for ways to target uh, these kinds of skills in their everyday routines and, and, and we do this naturally as adults right when we're separating the laundry we separate you know might separate by color and things but certainly when we're working with our children we're going to do things like you know let's put all of our socks are going to go right here and our towels are going to go right here and those are the kinds of things that moms can remember to do again in the context of their everyday routines now when you are working on teaching this milestone and this skill you can also use tools or specially designed tools to teach sorting and grouping by the various requirements. We've all, as uh, early educators, have seen the little matching cups and bears when we're teaching a child to match by color or sort by color. I'm thinking about the lacing sets now uh, where we might have little beads that have shapes or characters. And these are really helpful when children are just learning to categorize or sort. You might have things like different beads that are, say, flowers versus animals. And so again, you help children start with those broader categories and then you separate out into the more specific categories. But I like using things that really differentiate the space because I think it helps children see that and, and especially our children who have become more heavily dependent on visual cues and I think that instinctively they know uh, I, I can get extra information that will help me understand what my mom or my teacher or my therapist is trying to tell me right now and so they rely on those visual cues and so when we're doing things like teaching skills like grouping and sorting and we want we want there to be very specific uh sections there so that we can see a child understand it using things like piles or even something like an ice cube tray or an egg carton when we're separating or something bigger say the little dip trays that you might get at dollar tree those little cheapy things that we all use and kind of think about as disposable so those are great therapy tools and even for moms at home to use like that so that you are helping a child see those visual separations now children with strong visual preferences often gravitate toward this kind of task and so if I have a kid that I'm working with that we're doing lots and lots of receptive language and listening and processing is so difficult for them, sorting can actually be really calming for some of these children. So sometimes you'll start this that you're thinking, I'm using this to work on this to teach this new skill. And you're going to realize just how therapeutic it is for a child because it's also very, very regulatory in addition to working on the child's language skills. Um, but I use it a lot of times as a break task or when I see that a child is headed toward overstimulation or again when he's just working so hard and he needs that little break there. So it's also this is a great uh, sit down activity if you've had several rounds of fast play and you know that gosh this child is about to uh, you know it's going to be harder and harder for me to bring him back to this peace, calmful, uh, peaceful calm place so he's regulated for learning. Uh, you can certainly do that and even sitting uh, in a chair with their feet on the 
the ground would be more regulatory during this kind of calming task. So I just want to be able to uh, share those strategies with you too. Troubleshooting. Let's talk about what we do when a child is having difficulty learning to group objects. It's usually because he doesn't understand why the objects are the same or the commonalities or, or, or what would make them belong in that group so that they get the similarities there. And you might be trying to categorize too closely. So for those kinds of children, you may have to do more practice at that larger group level. And so instead, instead of separating apples and oranges, you're going to be separating like apples and rocks, right? Something that's dramatically different. And so you start, when, when you see that a child can't do these, these higher level separations, always go bigger. Why? And we always talk about this concept here on the podcast. We always have to back up. So you got to back up to what he can do and then move forward again to what might be emerging, what's what he has some difficulty doing. But you really have to back up to that point where, where that skill first starts to break down. And so when we're looking at uh, this skill with learning how to group objects, we go back and think, oh, we've got to make these categories bigger. And so again, if you had, you, you would look at Let's just use our example there with vehicles and we think, gosh, he just really doesn't understand, you know, this car from this truck or whatever. You know, he doesn't have the words to separate that. Sometimes it's the word, but sometimes it's the cognitive component too. They just don't understand the similarities and differences enough. And so uh, we've got to really work on that again here at the receptive vocabulary level before we'd ex- we would expect a child to be able to talk about those similarities and differences. And so uh, continue to tie individual vocabulary words for, for novel objects or continue to tie them together uh, when there's when there's something new there with something that, that they previously know. And again, we don't think about a lot of times as uh, in early intervention with explaining words or using synonyms to teach that. But that here where children are at that four-year-old developmental level, that's where we really start to use words to explain other words. So be sure that you're doing that. Be sure that you're, again, not only teaching new vocabulary words, you know, for novel objects, things I've never seen before, but new words for those larger categories and tie that category with the function by giving that child really specific language. Like, let's just do an example. This is a saw. This is a tool for cutting wood. Tools are used to build a house. We use tools to build new furniture like a chair or a bed. Tools also fix things that are broken. So that would be, again, kind of an explanation that we would give an older child. Now, as early interventionists, you might be thinking like me, too many words, too much new information. But again, we're talking about kids who are up at that four-year-old developmental level. Now, once a child has mastered categorizing real objects, we bump him up by moving him, what, to pictures. So we introduce that grouping with pictures. And we start with only two groups and have a child separate the the pictures into two piles. And so again, before we were saying things like, let's separate, you know, we're gonna we're gonna separate the the vehicles like we've been talking about. Again, here we're gonna have do that with uh, pictures when we're doing it. So, establish a group with two or three pictures by saying first, like, look, all of these pictures are clothes. Clothes are what we wear. Look, here's a shirt. Here's some socks. Let's find some more clothes. And again, the child is pulling the category out first, that new category, and then we might have it again where we're. Uh, where we're doing things like uh, we're separating clothing items versus toys or clothing items versus foods or clothing items versus art supplies or anything like that. 
All right, parents can easily carry over grouping and sorting as homework activities. We can give parents ideas, and we've already talked about the classic example of sorting clothing when uh, they're doing laundry, sorting silverware into the right slots in the holder, teaching the category name, uh, silverware or utensils in addition to the specific uh, nouns for each specific piece, like knife, fork, or spoon. Uh, one thing that I did when I started, did a lot of home visits when we would start working on this with families is something like organizing the family's shoes. You know, let's say that we separated shoes versus backpacks. Well, now we're down to separating, you know, daddy's shoes versus mommy's shoes versus baby's shoes or children's shoes or whatever you're doing there. So grouping is really a foundational skill. Understanding how to group objects into categories is paramount. It's so necessary for a child being able to compare and describe differences and similarities between objects and that is an upcoming expressive skill and it's certainly a child a skill a child is going to need in kindergarten so we've got to work on it to be sure that he's developmentally ready the next milestone is understands analogies now between three and a half and four a child with typically developing language understands object functions and making comparisons well enough to be able to answer questions like you sleep in a bed you sit on a chair they would select the picture to finish that sentence you eat your food with a fork you cut your food with a and they would select knife you see with your eyes and you hear with your ears and they would be able to select the correct picture so to teach analogies for a child who is not naturally understanding these things we have to break down the components and we have to teach a child how to think to get that correct answer and to make those language connections and so what i like to do when i'm working on this is begin with items that a child has successfully used for object function activities and then reword the questions in this way because that's what they're doing, right? They're basically just answering a question about an object function, but they're kind of taking it to the next level. And so what we're going to do is just help a child make that transition. So you could do this as you're playing and let's just use it with a really simple example here. Let's just take a baby doll set that we would be playing with with a child. And so let's say that we have several different objects there. So we've got the baby doll and let's say we have a cup, a spoon, a hat, and a toothbrush. So they're all out there on the floor as we're playing together. And so as we talked about with object functions, say, you know, the 30 month level or so, instead of saying something like, show me the one that's for drinking, we're now going to say something like, and again, we're going to set it up like an, an analogy. You brush your teeth with a toothbrush and you drink with a can you see how it's just that natural extension? And so, you know, same answer. Show me the one that's for drinking is the cup. But now we're putting it in that more mature language so that it's worded in that form like an analogy. You drink with a, and again, cup is the answer there. So we set it up and we use those visual cues with objects while we're playing. Now, again, I want to caution you since this is a receptive task, the expressive response is not necessarily required. The child can just pick the correct group or the correct object from the group. But lots of times kids are going to naturally uh, respond verbally and that's okay you won't discourage it but you're not going to really count it as wrong uh, here with a receptive task if a child isn't responding expressively yet if he's just 
uh, pointing or picking up the correct one or saying something like, here it is. You know, again, we want them really understanding it. When a child has difficulty with this, we have to work on it a lot. So again, the visual cues that we talk about with the pointing. And again, if we're going to, uh, you know, let's go back to our baby doll example that we've got the doll there with the tooth toothbrush and the hat and the cup and whatever else we have there and we're saying you know uh, you brush your teeth with the toothbrush but you drink with the and again sometimes do the other visual cue you know pantomime or gesture whatever word you use for that you know uh, as we're showing him cups so that they really start to understand this and again why is would an analogy be so difficult for a child Usually it's because he still doesn't understand those object functions well enough or still has lots of holes, for lack of a better word, in his vocabulary. So when a child is having significant difficulty with analogies, continue to work on what? You've got to build that vocabulary so that he's got those specific words for specific objects. So that specificity that we were talking about before, you know, back in that grouping um Milestone, the first one that we reviewed in the shows, we really taught in the show, we talked about needing those big category names. You you need those. You really, really need those, but you also need to be continuing to get that depth within that category so that you're con uh, continually pushing vocabulary development. We talked about that a lot in the previous show, and we'll certainly keep on talking about that throughout this show and the next show, but that really is the key, isn't it? It's just building that vocabulary. The next piece for a child who's having difficulty understanding analogies, like we've already talked about, is really understanding object functions. So when, when you are helping them, and really what you're doing is just introducing more words and you're helping them start to make uh, those comparisons and to really analyze and so sometimes kids get really kind of lost in that first piece they spend so much time kind of thinking about the first piece and processing what you're saying that they really don't get to the second piece and so again understanding those object functions will really help that uh, speed with processing so that they again this isn't this isn't above where they can really really process right now you, um, you you've got to build that up and so you may have to spend more time working on object functions than you thought and certainly like, like we talked about in the previous skill grouping objects into categories why would a bed and a chair be the same how are they different and so that's what children are really really learning when they are working on these first two milestones so we encourage parents to continue to work on these kinds of concepts at home because they are very very foundational and again like we said before when we're up here at the preschool level and even in early intervention we are always driving parents toward what toward that functional outcome so we in early intervention it's usually walking or talking right and so for preschoolers it's usually kids kindergarten, kindergarten, kindergarten. We want kids as ready for school as they can be. Dr. Rosetti talked about this a lot with even with using it with parents of children in our early intervention programs because we're always looking to the future and what what's the future for a, child, a baby, right? It's going to be get him as ready for school as he can be. Not necessarily, you know, long-term future, but what's what's that... Uh, most important uh, shorter term goal there you know again that is kind of uh, based with you know starting school having them just as ready as they can be to start school all right parents may also begin during this developmental phase to play little general knowledge games with their children at home and parents who have been in therapy with a child for a while are certainly used to these kinds of things but with analogies uh, that's kind of something again that's that next level up and so parents have to start to think 
think about these little word games and how they can play these with their kids uh, during daily routines. It might be something they do before bed or something that they do just a different part of their day. I think these kinds of games are fun in the car where a parent can really use these kinds of questions with their kids, but some parents aren't great with coming up with these kinds of things on their own. I've been using these little brain quest cards for my older kids that I've seen for a long time. I certainly used them when my own children were little. I was so delighted when uh, we started having grandchildren and I realized they were still out there and kind of brought them back as a therapy tool, but I, I had uh, not been using them and I remembered how much I loved them. I just bought this set for our grandbaby Henry who's turning two in the fall. So this is actually the two or three year old set. But the card, these cards are a great way to target analogies, inferences, logical reasoning, vocabulary development. I recommend it to preschool parents all the time. And again, usually when kids are at about the three year old level and the first, the starter set here is for twos to threes. Um, when I've used them with older kids, when I've seen older kids, uh, I use them a lot as a break time activity. It, to me, it's akin, it's an, uh, almost like reading, but it's almost a step even above reading for a parent because that uh, reciprocity is built in so that a child uh, will be expected to uh, answer some questions and a uh, parent would have some things there to be able to say versus just reading a book. So I love these little cards. I've got a link there uh, here on YouTube and a, a link to a post where I talk about them even more at my website at Teach Me to Talk. But I wanted to be sure to share a tool like this because again, I think this is a harder goal, even for some therapists to kind of think about, especially when you've been really hyper-focused on early intervention in that birth to three uh, age range. This is a great tool to help you bump up your skills to know what kinds of things you could be talking about with children too. The next milestone is understands emotion and physical state words. Now by the time a child with typically developing language turns four, she understands a variety of adjectives that describe feelings and emotions. So common emotion words that kids understand at this developmental level are words like happy, sad, mad, angry, excited, surprised, scared, brave, lonely, and frustrated. So these words are also similar to common physical state words. And we talked about this back at the 36 month level, and that's when some of our assessments have them listed, but lots of them group them here around four. So common physical state words. So what would that be? Those would be words like hungry, thirsty, sleepy, tired, sick. And again, super important descriptive words. Now there are lots of material to try to teach these kinds of words, but what I try to do, as you could probably guess, is teach these words in context using situations that just naturally come up during play. Now some therapists are gonna shy away from play with undesired emotional states like jealousy or aggression, but our colleagues who are psychologists or other uh, social workers or other mental health professionals would explain that play is exactly the context that we should use to experiment with these very real feelings. And I would say then that's going to be make it even more likely that a child will link meaning with that new vocabulary word because they've got a specific experience to be able to 
uh, remember and relate that back to. So learning how to appropriately react to negative feelings is a key to maturing emotionally and kids need tons of practice with that, especially our little friends who have some developmental issues. We know that when you have these kinds of things, emotional regulation can also be very, very difficult for some of our little friends who have developmental differences. And actually in my real life, I know a lot of adults who need practice with these kinds of things too, right? Appropriately reacting to negative feelings. And so it's certainly something that we have to help children with. Now, some therapists like to use pictures to teach a child to recognize these emotions. And again, I'm gonna prefer those real life activities where they're gonna come up just as we are playing with them and or even in when we're using books and reading, uh, reading activities. So uh, when we're playing and we're using lots of uh, activities with toys, you want to think as the adult about coming up with some plots, some really kind of um, expected routines that you would uh, that you would think that a child would be able to participate in and have some previous experience to be able to rely upon, and then as a child is familiar with it, then they're able to introduce their own new ideas with that. So think about problem solving and then exploring feelings. So let's say that you are playing with the house with a child. What could you do? You've got some people there. You've got some animals there. Let's just say that you're going to pretend that one of the pets, say the cat, has run away from home. And so when you're naturally thinking about that and pretending and kind of coming up with your sequencing for that plot, emotion words are naturally going to come up with that, right? And so what emotions would the child feel? He's gonna feel sad that his child is gone. Oh no, we need a plan. What can we do? So that moment there of kind of questioning, I don't know, I don't know what emotion word you wanna call that there, but you know, we've gotta come up with our plan and, and and what we can do and then while we're looking you know we're in that that moment of really searching you know and they're going to find the cat so then we're going to all feel what we're going to all feel happy and we're going to all feel as the adult you know relieved right and so we introduce those kinds of emotion words there let's talk about something like pretending to go to the doctor how would the child feel so you could talk about fear or being scared you could talk about being hurt you know or the pain there you talk about being brave through that that I'm, not, I'm going to be brave for my shot today. So those kinds of things. Um, it doesn't always have to be negative. I've given two kind of negative scenarios there with the cat running away and with uh, getting a shot at the doctor. But any kind of thing like that, any kind of emotion that a child would explore. So something more positive like pretending birthday party or pretending that they're going to the zoo or even something more familiar like they're going outside to play. So create the plot and then talk about the character's feelings so that a child would be able to uh, understand that and get more experience with that. All right, after they've done that a lot with real objects, then we're going to bump up to pictures to target the skill. And I think that that's so important that we talk about that distinction with parents that when a child is having difficulty doing something with pictures or processing something with pictures, we always know as professionals that that means that he or she needs more uh, uh, concrete experiences with that. The pictures are too abstract. And so then we talk about to parents that we need to bring this down and have this, uh, really talk about this and really master this in the context of real life everyday activities before we start to introduce it visually. When we get to the picture level, at least then give some context to it. So then for teaching emotions, you would at least model the facial expression 
or use a doll or a character to demonstrate that situation that may have prompted the emotion. So for example, if we were trying to teach a child to recognize the word scared, which by four you probably are not having to teach that, that's probably one they already know, but we would model what? A fearful facial expression and body language as we said the appropriate words during a play scenario. So something like, oh, I'm scared. Or if you were modeling, you know, brave, you're going to have, you know, uh, a much more confident uh, body language there. And so again, do that. Help children retain meaning for those words by giving them visual cues with not only with the picture, but what um, you are adding to that interaction too. So talk with parents about incorporating these kinds of words into play and daily routine teens and explain how important these words are even when the emotion isn't positive. Now many many books and early literacy activities have social situations that describe things that are new or uncomfortable for children like we mentioned before things like going to the dentist, getting a haircut, having a new baby brother or sister, starting a new school, uh, be, being a biter, being the child that's being bitten. I mean, we can find little social stories. You know, we can make those up as therapists or we can find uh, books that are already done. Look for books to introduce and support a child in their family when a child is having difficulty with a new transition or navigating an upcoming life change. I think it's a great tool to do that. And again, th this may go beyond what you've done previously with your experience as an early interventionist. You have to really uh, think about literacy in a different way there. Look for books with more mature themes. All right, for a preschooler, the ability to use a word to represent an uncomfortable feeling is a much more desirable outcome than aggression or tantrums or any other kind of physical representation. So we need to teach words uh, like uh, jealous, I feel jealous, or I want I wanted my turn and it was somebody else's turn and help a child really, really work through that. Now these kinds of emotion words are absolutely vital for all kids, but especially our little kids with regulation difficulties. So our kids with sensory processing differences who may even have to learn how to explain their own responses to parents when their behavior isn't making sense to anyone. So it's so, so important that we teach these words. And again, this may be a skill that children on our caseloads don't fully master until they are much, much older. But if we can help parents begin to teach these words and why they're important for teaching these words so that they can understand their children and their children can be can have another avenue to be able to explain things to their parents that again that that they may even have difficulty um, uh, being able to communicate how they feel so it really helps families work through these situations with a child with developmental differences and if we can do that we have done a really good job the next milestone is understands more complex sentences. So by the time a child is nearing his fourth birthday, his comprehension has advanced so that he can identify pictures with expanded sentences or with two familiar attributes. For example, the one that I, uh, that I, I don't remember if it's from the PLS three or four, but it's find the small white kitten that's not in the box or find the brown dog with the long tail. So children have to really be able to understand lots of different words there. We're not just saying again, you know, find the dog or where's the kitty cat. We have much more descriptive there. So to work on this skill, what does the child need? More vocabulary. So vocabulary development, again, continues to be a big, big uh, goal 
for all children who are all children typically developing children as well as children who are having difficulty mastering their language milestones so when a child can't seem to respond correctly to more complex sentences it's usually that they're missing modifiers or descriptive words so we have to teach uh, the descriptive words there sometimes we have to break it down and really walk a child through the decision-making process for each object or picture shown so let's go back to our first example find the small white kitten that's not in the box so you can imagine there with the picture what do you probably see you probably see lots of cats because it says small you probably have some cats that have some size differentiation so for children who are here at the preschool level some obviously adult cats and some baby cats kittens and then there's the white kittens so we have some color differentiations there and then we also had what that's not in the box so we had some kittens in the box and some kittens that are out of the box now you can tell already how much language that is and so you have to help a child walk through those modifiers and walk through those descriptors and so you can see if there are some vocabulary issues like they really haven't mastered size they still don't know colors they don't know negation yet they're lost before they even start to kind of again that that's what makes them not able to understand and process that so those basic skills that we have talked about again now all the way up to this level and all of these skills really are foundational for the next skill or what comes beyond that and so we have to teach a child how to think and how to listen for those words and then that process of elimination or process of inclusion I guess we would say so that a child understands what option to pick there and so you'll really start to see their vocabulary holes and so like i mentioned for this milestone the deficit is usually with descriptive words so you've got to teach adjectives and adverbs and so when i think about this with working with a child like this i think okay this is on me i have got to describe everything a child sees with at least two descriptors maybe we've kept it too simple so that they're not able to really put all this together and process more than one piece of information at a time and so it really makes us double down on vocabulary with these kids and it does help make us expand so that they begin to expand too and so start with the familiar descriptors that they that they do understand and then expand and so again like we, i mentioned before think about synonyms and think about how you can really explain a word or define a word and this has been something new uh, this will be something new because up until now we've just really talked about calling uh, a word whatever it is right or teaching a new noun a new word for that we really haven't thought about oh we can come at this from a different direction with again a synonym or something that they already stand that'll make it easier and so um, I talked to parents too about making sure that we uh, think about synonyms also as a way to teach it and so you know as instead of just saying something is little what other words can we introduce for that we can say small we can say tiny instead of something is big we think about large or huge instead of something being wet we can give different degrees and say it's soaking or it's damp and so talk to parents about teaching those more specific differentiations children with receptive vocabulary deficits and those with working memory or language processing problems will have lots of difficulty with this milestone and again it's not sometimes it's not just that uh, it's the one piece it's just that vocabulary deficit maybe they can't hold all that information in there when you're saying find the small white kitten that's not in the box 
maybe that's too much information for them to process at one time. And you've got to, again, build that incrementally. Sometimes it's attention too. And so when we slow down and we give them the visual cues, they, they get it. And if they get it right away, we know that's attention. They just haven't been able to, again, listen well enough to really process and make that choice right away. If, if they need lots of explanation, if you're, if again, it's more of a teaching thing where you review it over and over and over, you know, then it's a vocabulary issue or again, that extra time to process. And so how do we do that? How do we teach vocabulary? We play and we play and we play and when we're sick of that, what do we do? We play some more, right? Or for preschoolers, we read and we read and we read and when we're sick of that, we read some more. There's no other way. Those are the things that we do to teach children new vocabulary in a more structured setting. And of course we can do it with everyday routines, but lots of times children need that more direct instruction. All right, so for homework for parents, what are we teaching our parents here? We need to teach them, again, vocabulary development and expansion. So they need to use multiple words to describe the things that they see. So instead of, oh, look at the dog, they need to expand the statement like we just heard with the example, the cute little white dog with spots, or that's a big brown dog that barks so loud, or, you know, whatever, whatever they can come up with. But they've got to be really, really more descriptive now. For those of us who are in early intervention, we have preached what? The opposite. We've preached simplify, simplify, simplify. But now it's time to expand if a parent is still not doing that already. Another thing that we like to do is teach parents to avoid nonspecific language. And so instead of saying, take that off, if a mom wants her child to get undressed, she would say something like, give me your dirty shirt. Your shirt got yucky from all that brown pudding that you smeared all over it. You know, whatever. So you've got to give more of an explanation there. So help kids build vocabulary and build that ability to think. And that's what children really have to have for this level of language development. Now, as I've said before, reading and playing are our main avenues here for direct instruction or more specific instruction and, and what we do for kids who aren't naturally picking it up in their everyday routines. We know that they have to have those more structured teaching opportunities. And then have a child test it out so that they really, you know that they have solidified their understanding of these concepts receptively long before they begin to use those words expressively to meet that milestone. So give them lots of opportunities to pick and uh, make choices that that where they've listened to and they've they've listened to what you've said and they've are given lots and lots of opportunities to follow those more complex directions. The next milestone is receptively identifies all the basic colors. Now we're not going to have to talk about this one for very long <laughs> because we've already talked about it back in a previous show and I mentioned it in the introduction but when a child is three he should identify the following basic colors and we certainly want to see this by four. Red, green, blue, yellow, purple, orange, black, and white. Now by the end of this age level, a child should understand more subtle colors like pink, gray, and brown. Now as I've already said in this series, every professional who has anything to do with young children has their favorite way of teaching colors. And if you're a therapist and don't have a favorite way, you probably need to get yourself some uh, routine activities that you do because we certainly want to teach these to parents and practice these with children who haven't met these uh, milestones by four. 
Parents should be teaching colors with incidental teaching all day long. And what do I mean by incidental teaching? Meaning it just comes up. It's a situation that naturally occurs and you're going to use that opportunity uh, to teach your child colors. And parents, again, have been doing this since their children were babies. Which cup do you want? Red or blue? Which shirt will you, will you wear today? You know, green or pink? And so we, we certainly want to encourage that with parents. And for for those of us who are early interventionists who again have preached don't teach shapes colors letters and numbers by four we certainly want a child learning those things uh, so traditional methods uh, that teachers use in preschool like using flashcards at circle time or naming colors in books or on worksheets you know I would challenge you as a therapist to take a different approach because everybody's already doing that and it's not working with a child so get something that again is more uh, alluring to that child so they're going to want to participate certainly going to be more fun for a child if you are a little bit more creative and certainly parents have probably already had a stab at this and other preschool teachers too so let's face it if a child hasn't learned to identify colors by now there is a problem going on and we've got to find a way to teach a child uh, colors in a way that's enticing enough to help a child uh, remember that so I like using high energy movement games to teach colors if a child is still struggling to attend and so uh, anything where we have balls of different colors so ball pit games those kinds of things designing running or relay games like matching gift bows to construction paper and having a child retrieve those on request or uh, any any kind of game where, where we where we're using different color objects there so for homework we have to explicitly remind parents to teach and target colors and I always like to remind them to do it receptively first so instead of just always asking what color is this we've got to go at it from a different direction so let's review that continuing continuum of teaching colors we've done it a couple of times in this series but let's be sure you have it by the next to the last show so for teaching colors we're going to sort and match by color first then we're going to receptively identify it and then we're going to name that color expressively now other kinds of games that parents can do are things like i spy where they're finding something you know i see something that's yellow and everybody's pointing to it or something like a treasure hunt where they're even saying where mom might even say i want you to run around and find five things that are blue ready set go find something that's blue and again not just one little exemplar for that or 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 you know example of that that they can find lots of different things so that they really really understand it you can certainly do that with a page in a book too where the child uh, finds it on the page and remember if a child doesn't know colors by four I've already said it a couple of times he's not picking it up by incidental teaching so you're gonna have to give him more structure here is where we also start to think really seriously more impactfully uh, about what's going on with that you know thinking about the impact here what's going to happen with this child again with with these cognitive issues you know we have to think about their learning processes and so and think about really matching our teaching styles to what we know about a child is it just that they need lots of repetition or is it with with, with their kind of primary way of learning or do they need multiple multiple ways of input and presenting that information before a child seems to learn how to master something new so you'll be able to start to tease out these learning differences by the time a child is learning is nearing the age of four and it's such valuable information for parents so be sure that you're talking about that 
The next milestone is understands names for basic shapes. So by this developmental phase, a child should be able to correctly identify basic shapes like circle, square, triangle, rectangle, oval, and diamond. And remember, this is the receptive component that we're talking about. So they would be able to point to or somehow find the correct shape when you ask them. So just like with teaching colors, the first thing we want a child to be able to do is what? Is match. So first they have to be able to differentiate shapes well enough to find the ones that are the same. And so materials to teach shapes are commonly available. Less mature children may still enjoy things like shape, sutter, shape sorters or inset puzzles to do shapes. We also, for children who are a little bit pickier, a little bit more selective about their activities, need something a little bit higher. There are some great shape matching games. The Oreo cookies uh, set is a real classic where uh, you have halves of cookies that have the same shape and they fit together and the ones that don't match do not. Uh, there are puzzles or older materials that you can use for more mature children. Uh, certainly things that again would look a little bit more abstract. And certainly you can use things like beads or small manipulatives. Even like um, those, uh, that game that I'm thinking about that they all pop out. Uh, perfection. That's the game I'm thinking about where you put the match little shape in. Those, our child who uh, had dyslexia or has dyslexia, has an adult still, but the, uh, those kinds of things are better for older children who are learning to uh, uh, identify shapes. All right, older children, other things that I've done that are more fun in therapy than those even kind of manipulatives, you can fold paper into different shapes or cut shapes from foam. Uh, rather than having a child just really try to draw shapes, which a lot of us do because children do enjoy drawing with crayons and markers, but sometimes they're missing the mark on what the shape is. So maybe even try something that's a little bit uh, easier for a child, like a sand tray or shaving cream. And so we're borrowing ideas from our colleagues who are OTs, right? Even making shapes with Play-Doh can be a lot of fun for preschoolers. So you may be wondering as a speech language pathologist or a parent or a developer, developmental therapist watching this, why is that important? What does this have to do with language development? Shapes are an important way that we classify and describe objects. And again, here we're looking, well, how do we describe objects? We often use shape to do that. You know, that looks like a circle or this one isn't when we're describing it, you know, we'll say something like it's more of a triangle or something, you know, those are just natural descriptors that we use. Kids also have to be able to organize and categorize and make the observations like we've talked about with our other milestones with sorting similarities and differences. And so these kinds of things are really needed for problem solving. And so knowing shapes are certainly a, a foundational piece with academic success. They're kindergarten and teachers are going to expect them to know that. And it's also, uh, even on a more practical note, is an early step in understanding number and letter uh, symbols there. And so one of the first things that they're going to be doing is recognizing their shape. You know, the number one is what? It's a line. Uh, the, number, the number eight, you know, has some circles in it. And so again, a really basic descriptor that children uh, need to be able to use by the time they turn four. So for homework, what should we suggest to parents? I like things like Shape Hunt, where they find household items that match various shapes. Certainly they'll do incidental teaching where they're talking about 
the paper is a rectangle the clock is a circle the block is a square those things are great but again if a child doesn't understand uh, the, these words by the time they're four we're going to have to be more structured and parents have to participate in this as well if, if they really 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 have the expectation that their child will catch up and move beyond uh, just that that incremental progress that lots of our little friends with language delays seem to fall into you know parents really have to do lots and lots and lots of work at home and so even helping parents figure out you know how can I do this that it's not so so structured, you know, at the table with things that are, you know, like that. They can, they can do games like we talked about with a shape hunt or an I spy. You know, let's find things that uh, look like uh, a circle. Let's find things that look like a square, you know, those kinds of things. And so um, I spy would be a great, great game. And so talk about that with parents that you're, and teach them model during therapy. Have, have a time where you say, you know, this is the kind of game that you can play with them in the car or at home. Let's just play it now here in therapy so you can see what I'm talking about. And so that would be a great way to introduce shapes. So I hope I've given you some different ideas beyond worksheets or those really obvious things to do. I want to share one final word about auditory or language processing. Now, although we do not officially diagnose children with language processing or auditory processing disorders until a child is about six or seven, and we're still real, really talking about three or four-year-olds here in this age range, we need to start to pay attention and look at these kinds of things. And so these are the symptoms with in preschoolers for a child who is at risk for auditory or language processing issues. So number one, poor sequencing in both receptive and expressive language. So they don't always get the order right when we're talking about uh, when we're when they're describing, you know, beginning, middle, and end. They have difficulty even with maybe syntax in their uh, language. We'll get we'll get to that too. But difficulty with language there with the poor sequencing. Number two, slow development of vocabulary and concepts. And so I've already mentioned that children may have some cognitive issues when they're having difficulty learning things like shapes or colors. But it could also be just a language processing problem. There's not that underlying cognitive issue there but there is it's the language piece it's the getting the words assigned to the right uh to to the to the right thing that they're representing the third piece is ineffective short-term memory so these are things uh, these are, are problems like a ch when you're saying to a child find the small white kitten that's not in the box they can't remember all those words they have a real hard time holding on to that and following those directions number four slow development in understanding and using wh questions now Thankfully, we did not talk about WH questions in this show, but we have been talking about them in uh, several of the last shows. I would say the, uh, the, the four preceding shows, or the, even the four age ranges here, with understanding the WH questions, and that's a marker for children who are having difficulty with processing language. Number five, this is the speech part, and it also goes with the language difficulty, delayed articulation or phonological development. So their speech does not sound as mature as other children their own age. So maybe they're still leaving off word endings, or they're still simplifying words in, in multisyllabic words. They're leaving out syllables, or they're still using earlier developmental, earlier developing sounds for later developing sounds and so certainly uh, that's a marker as well 
Number six, significant word retrieval problems. You know that they know the word that they want to say. They've said it before. They just can't recall it when they need it. Number seven is immature grammar with persistent error patterns. So these are children that have difficulty with verb tense markings, children who have difficulty with pronouns. Maybe they're still using their names instead of saying pronouns like I or me. And number eight would be slow to develop social language skills. They uh, have poor awareness of conversational rules. So they don't have great turn taking. They don't understand that they don't need to interrupt. They need to listen. when, And they also might um, not understand things like uh, mommy's on the phone and I have to wait. She can't. She's talking to someone else. My teacher is helping another child. It's not my turn yet. So those are all indicators of a child who's really, really struggling with language processing. So how do we separate or think about kids with language processing issues versus a language delay at this age or disorder? We don't, right? <laughs> they have to wait until their school age to be able uh, to be fully diagnosed. Our job as early interventionists is just to be able to be aware of the cluster of the deficits which might indicate that problem and then to really support a child at the level that they are currently functioning developmentally. So we work on auditory processing games. Now anything that's going to give a child practice listening and then responding but not necessarily talking would be what we're doing. So during this entire podcast series I've talked a lot about that with specific goals, but I want to share how I approach this with the kids that I treat, and I think about these as little language or auditory processing games, and again, I've mentioned these ideas as we've moved throughout this series, but I just want to kind of tie it all up and talk about it here at the end. So running games or obstacle courses are perfect. They're your go-to treatment activities because they give kids a reason to listen to what you're saying. Hold that little command and their working memories and then respond. The movement is what really helps keep them on task and then it's really, really motivating. And so I play these little games all the time, you know, because we're working on their physical uh, regulation, their mental or their cognitive processes there where they're really learning how to think and then the attention piece. They have to hold that, all that language there while they complete the task. And so here are some of my favorites and it's a loose kind of order that I introduce them. The first one is puzzle relay games. And this is where you just place an empty puzzle you know, it's someplace probably on the other side of the room. You're going to hold up two or three pieces or place them on the floor in front of you and ask a child a question, usually related to object function is how I start here. And why? Because I want them really, really listening to me and then making a decision or a choice based on those words. And I want it to be simpler than just find the cat, find the dog, find the duck. You know, it has to be something, again, that, that they have to really, really think about, listen to, and then respond correctly. So, for example, with an animal puzzle, you might say, you know, give me the one that says moo. Or with a vehicle puzzle, you might say, show me the one that flies. And so when a child selects the correct piece, then they run, put it in the puzzle, and then come back. And so then they, uh, we continue until the puzzle is done. Same session, same kid, I might bump it up a little bit where... I'm asking him to find two or three of something and then bring it back. And so that's 
for what? That's that working memory piece. So I might say, uh, go if we're playing that little game that I talked about with just matching, uh, let's say we're matching Legos to construction paper. You know, I might say, go get me two yellows and a blue. And if a kid can't do that at the beginning, you may just start really simple. You know, find one that's green and one that's red and then bump it up from there. But again, you are working on him listening to you, holding that information in his little memory, completing the task, and then again, sharing that experience with you. Change the task pretty often though, so that a kid doesn't get on autopilot and he has to really, really listen. The next kind of thing that you would do would be an obstacle course where a child has to complete several uh, things in a row here. And again, you might have done an obstacle course for a different purpose. Maybe you were doing sensory regulation where you would just want the child to be in that calm, just right place for learning when you're finished. So you, your goal there isn't, again, for him to process or do what you said. Your goal there is what? It's for movement to get his body ready for the next thing. Well, this kind of thing would be a little bit different. So it's so he's really, again, learning how to sequence and he's listening to the verbal direction. So it's not set up for him to do the same exact thing every single time. He has to really listen. So you're saying, let's say that you have a, a basketball goal, a tunnel, some blocks and I don't know let's just use that a basketball goal a tunnel and blocks and so you might say throw the ball in the basket and then crawl through the tunnel and then he comes back to you and then you tell him jump over the blocks and give me five you know something that's maybe not even in the obstacle course but you're giving him directions or having him do it in a different way so that he has to really really listen now anytime you play a game in the context of racing or going fast it makes it much more likely in that a child will participate and it makes it much more entertaining for a preschooler. And so if by chance you find a child who doesn't like these games and they're out there but they're rare, what do you do? You model it. You do it with them or you have mom do it and you know have mom just pretend like she is having the time of her life. You have another sibling there or another peer model that can do it for them. But most of the times the kids who balk at this and who don't want to play are really the kids who need the practice the most. And so find things that they'll do with you. Find ways that they're, that you can just play listening games where they're going to listen to what you have them do. And they're going to do it and they're going to come back and listen and then you're going to change it up and they're going to do it. And again, why are you doing this? It's so that listening is the skill that you're developing so that they are really dependent on what you are saying for that. And so begin with one step and liberally play praise a child's efforts and successes work up to two steps and then beyond so that a kid really feels like he's accomplishing something these games are great for small groups of children too but then kids have to really practice waiting their turns which is a really important skill as well all right the next little game would be using those kinds of games with numbers and letters and these are shapes or whatever little uh, shapes, letters, colors, and numbers, anything like that. So if a child has obvious visual strength, so he knows his colors, but he has a really hard time listening and participating and following directions because he has an auditory or a language processing deficit, use those activity preferences to target those skills. And so if he loves letters, you know, have him really, you know, and his letters are on the refrigerator, 
be in the den and say, you know, go get me an S and a T and have him run, go get it and then bring it back. Now make sure he doesn't get lost between where you are and where he is and coming back. You might have to go with him. You might have to have mom go with him. Whatever you're doing or where, whatever environment you're in, make sure he follows through. But give him that little extra step in there so that he has to listen and again demonstrate that he's uh, understood. Adjust the level of complexity as needed. You know, you can certainly uh, make it hard you know with lots of different uh, things that are different sizes and shapes and colors and so you might you know find a little yellow square versus a big blue circle and so again a child has to listen for lots of those attributes so many times these kinds of games are so fun for kids and so entertaining that it doesn't feel like work at all and again it looks like you're you're doing the break in therapy when you're really just working on a different skill now i like to use these activities a lot when i'm losing a child's attention in a session or when i'm rewarding him for great attention again it might not be as much of a load uh, cognitively and processing wise for some kids as it is for others so just figure out how you can use those kinds of games I like these kinds of games too because we can involve every child who's present so it's a great one for older or even slightly younger siblings they're great for homework too and so let parents see you play these games let them see you fail with these kinds of games where you come up with something and it doesn't work quite right and then you modify it you teach a parent how to think on your feet. Sometimes I think parents learn as much from our failures in sessions as they do our successes. So talk with that, parents about that. If you will help a parent plan, they are much more likely to carry over that activity. And I used to think, you know, I'm just beating a dead horse here. I've already showed a mom how to play this. Surely she's going to know how to play this at home. Sometimes that's just not the case. And so you've really, really got to give them specific ideas. Otherwise, they're not going to think about uh, carrying that over. Now, since this is the very last receptive language show in this series, I kind of want to do a final recap here to really just wrap our heads around all the strategies that we've discussed, beginning at around 12 months, all the way through this 48-month period. Once a child begins to achieve any receptive language skill that we are introducing as a parent or as a therapist, we want to generalize that skill. So we want to be sure that we are training all the important adults in a child's life with what they're working on and how to really, how to really help a child be able to demonstrate that. And so we're going to be sure as therapists that we're teaching parents and caregivers exactly what we've done to be able to elicit a specific skill. Uh, one of the easiest things that we've talked about through this whole series is using the using the cueing system tell him show him help him to be able uh, to help a child get his verbal cues his visual cues and the tactile cues he needs to be able to understand the language that he's hearing we need to frequently remind parents and ourselves as therapists that children learn best by what by doing so if we are teaching a new concept or a word we are always going to opt for real life activities with toys over things like apps and even over things like flashcards and certainly books are always worthwhile because that's an early literacy activity but anytime that a child is having difficulty understanding something with a picture we need to back it up with a real object we're always going to give parents specific homework based on our successes in our sessions as well as the numerous ideas that we've gotten throughout this series 
uh, with the handouts and we're going to always be sure that we are emphasizing that receptive language is ideal for a parent to work on at home and that really sets the foundation for a child being able to use those words. He understands them first before he's able to use those words to talk. And I always like to tell parents that we are going to see receptive language progress a lot faster than we'll see expressive language progress. And so if we can just all focus on helping children understand, we know that talking piece is going to come. But we, when children aren't understanding language, we got to focus on that receptive language piece first. One of the ways that we help parents really buy into that is by explaining the significance of our receptive language ideas. And so we tie it to, to expressive language development. And so we say, today your child learned blah and blah and blah and that's great because now we know that he's going to be ready to say that. We're getting closer and closer to him being able to use those words to talk. All right, so that is it for the receptive language, uh, the whole receptive language section of this podcast series, and more specifically for the skills that we talked about by 48 months. Just like the other shows, I want to point you to my therapy manual, Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, which lists all the milestones that we've covered in this series and really uh, is just a written representation of how to look at a milestone with several proven strategies and activities to help you facilitate that milestone and that skill in a child. All right, coming up next is show 463, Expressive Language Milestones by 48 Months, and that will be the last show in this series. If you need continuing education credit for this course, I hope that you'll go get that. If you're watching here on YouTube, you can find the link right here below the post. If you're listening uh, to the podcast, be sure to go to my website at teachmetotalk.com and uh, find show number 462. All right, that's all for today. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and thank you for watching or listening to Teach Me to Talk the Podcast.